Welcome back to the 191st episode of the Daily Flip Podcast. I'm your host, Alex. Today we'll be flipping through some of the top stories, including why some non-Trump Republicans are still loyal to the party, even though he's changed a few things, how there's an interesting question about are we headed down a libertine, narcissistic path as a country? That one comes from the Mises Institute. And there's an American loophole that is driving the fentanyl crisis. And, of course, we will end today with our daily delight, a story meant to leave you feeling positive and ready to take on the day. Now, that's enough rambling from me. Let's jump in to our daily debate. So have we lost perspective? Do we no longer look to the wise people of our past, to the people who have given us so much information, so much insight into how to operate within the world, and have we just disregarded their opinions? And what I mean by this is I feel as though a lot of people in Gen Z, and maybe it's because we're young, but a lot of people don't look to the history. They don't look to our past. They kind of overlook it saying, no, 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 we know the way, rather than sitting down with some of the most famous, some of the most well thought, some of the most articulate writers of the past that have provided so much information in wealth of knowledge that we could really take advantage of. But maybe that's just me. Maybe I'm not seeing something. Maybe we just absorb our content in a different way and we still love the past. We just don't do it like we would have previously. So throw your comments down there in the comment section. Love to hear what you have to say. Now let's jump to our first article that comes from the Daily Beast. Why my disdain, this is the headline, why my disdain for Trump won't sway me from being a Republican. So, you know, we have the Lincoln projects of the world. We have the never Trumpers, you know, the Liz Cheney's of the world, so on and so forth. And there's always this talk of, ah, yes, Trump is splitting the Republican Party. He is, you know, pushing away those longtime voters who just can't deal with his personality or they feel he's moved too far right, even though most people would probably argue that a lot of his policies are pretty moderate in some degree. You know, there are a few, like immigration, where he's specifically more to the right than a lot of the previous administrations or previous uh, party leadership. But there are other ones where, you know, he is definitely not in line with mainstream conservatives. And it's always interesting when you look at that conversation about, yeah, he is dividing the nation. Well, now we have another example of one person who doesn't like Trump, but he's going to stick by the Republican Party. And I thought it was an interesting insight into the mind of someone like this. Quote, when people ask me about where my conservative beliefs come from, I can give them many rational reasons that I have mostly reverse engineered. But the truth is that my first political influence was my father. My dad worked as a prison guard for 30 years in Hagerstown, Maryland. That's right. He literally went to jail for three decades so that I could get paid to write about politics. Talk about a sacrifice. Coming from a blue-collar background had its downsides, but it has given me valuable perspectives. Few of my colleagues have a background as rural or as conservative as mine. So why do I read this first part? Oh, getting a little bit of background on the author. Why, why is that important? 
Uh, the reason I like this opening from him is is explaining the fact that these hardworking blue collar people in America who may have been part of unions, who may have voted Democrat purely based on the benefits that it can bring to them or to the people around them, like their union members or maybe some certain family policies in the past, these sort of people still have very conservative or what most people would argue are conservative values nowadays. Honestly, I would argue they're just American values, the ability to pull up your bootstraps, the ability to sacrifice what you want in the short term for long-term survival, if you want to put it as bluntly as that, but prosperity, long-term prosperity for you and your family. And I would say this is quintessentially American, but more and more it's seen as conservative. You hear trends like, ah, yeah, the 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 gym bros. The gym bros happen to be all conservative. Uh, they're just going to the gym and they're, you know, lunking metal, so on and so forth. Yeah, those people are lunking metal. They're putting up with short-term pain in order to get long-term gain. And I know that's a really interesting example. You're probably like, wait, hold on, that's not indicative of the entire political sphere. But when you talk to certain people on the left nowadays, they much more would rather have government come in and take a uh, quick intervention. Not everybody. I'm not saying everybody. I'm saying the people that I speak to who are a little bit younger, who may not see the, lo- the long game yet necessarily, who haven't been through certain experiences. But even young conservatives understand, hey, no, we need to sacrifice for the long-term game. And young liberals seem to say, no, okay, we need the solution right now. It, we can't wait. We can't play this out long-term. We can't think about giving up and sacrificing what we have now, because, gosh, I really like it, in order to get to that place in the future. We just need it to be fixed immediately. So I think this is an interesting beginning, highlighting the fact that his father sacrificed. And he saw that every single day, and that imbibed him, imbued him, excuse me, with a very particular point of view about the world. And as someone else who had two parents who sacrificed day in and day out, don't get me wrong, love their jobs, absolutely love their jobs. But you could see the stress that it, it took on them, the stress it caused them, the toll it took on them sometimes when they had hard days, even when they had good days, you could see it. And seeing that sort of sacrifice in order to reach stability, in order to aid me when I was younger and get me through hard situations and be prepared in case anything ever happened, those sort of things rub off. And when you have those sort of parents in the household, no matter if you're conservative, no matter if you're liberal, if you're Democrat, if you're independent, if you're Republican, those are core values that are really important to the success of America. And they really are American values beyond what we kind of throw them into categorically nowadays. So you can see here, the author is talking about a quintessential American value. And I wanted to highlight why that is means he's probably willing to stay on the Republican side of the aisle because he feels like that side of the aisle still really talks about these ideas and really still believes in them, at least in the younger generation. So what's the difference between the parties in this guy's eyes? Because obviously he is somebody who doesn't like Trump, but he wants to stick with the Republicans. What is the contrast? What's keeping him away from the Democratic Party? Quote, to understand the fundamental difference between the parties is to understand the difference between Edmund Burke's philosophy and the one espoused by the likes of Thomas Paine and one of the philosophers who inspired him, 
uh, Jean-Jacques Rousseau. Uh, Burke believed Western civilization was something of a miracle that had to slowly evolve over time. His version of conservatism stressed being grateful and giving thanks for the institutions we have. Tweaking and improving things is commendable, but we shouldn't stress the system too much, and we certainly shouldn't attempt to overturn society via revolution. Burke also believed in original sin, which G.K. Chesterton said was the only part of the Christian theology that could be proved. As the father of two sons, I concur. It's impossible to raise kids and not realize we are born to be bad. That's the whole point of civilization, to civilize us. So you may be thinking, well, okay, hold on. He's making, he's making a, an appeal and a difference between Thomas Paine, who was around in uh, 1776, and Edmund Burke, who was around in the 1600s in England, and uh, we're talking about Rousseau, who was also around in the 1600s in France. Like That doesn't emphasize the modern uh, parties. That doesn't actually clarify anything for how both parties feel today. Why did you say you're comparing the parties? And that's because I would argue... It actually exemplifies both parties pretty darn well. So the Republicans want small incremental change. Whether you like that or not, whether you think there's a true conservative value to just slowly give in and check the other side versus actually holding the line and keeping certain things where they need to be and not budging whatsoever, no matter where you stand on that issue. Some conservatives are in one place, some are the other. There's definitely that sentiment in the Republican Party nowadays. And on the Democratic side, in the Democratic Party, there are people who are trying to upheave to completely, I don't want to say cause a revolution, because that's not exactly what they're doing. But they're willing to break the standards, break the norms in a way that is very... Uh, jarring, and they're willing to kind of throw things up in the air and see where they land, hoping that it ends up in their way forward, just like the proposals of the Green New Deal or the you know, massive, when Build Back Better was on the table, it was supposed to be a massive overhaul, completely, not completely changing society, but ch- changing a lot of the base nature of the way that our system works. A a lot of more emphasis on green technology rather than oil technologies, practically cutting a lot of oil production on Biden's side of the, or during his time in the administration. And these are all shifts from the status quo. These are all ways to actually radically shift the way that we perceive things. Or think about it this way, trying to cancel student debt. That's a radical change. That is a huge change. And let's be clear, yes, oh, well, he's only going to do it once. Once he set the standard, it just keeps happening over and over again. Oh, well, Biden did it. Why can't I do it for these students in 20 years? Oh, well, you know, now the payments are getting a little bit higher. Let's do it every 10 years. You know what? No. Now everybody's expecting it. We might as well just cancel debt altogether and just have it all be publicly funded, so on and so forth. So you can see that these ideas, these seedlings still exist in some degree, which is one side wants to maintain the status quo, the other side wants to constantly push and completely disrupt the system. Just like those Silicon Valley bros that are like, hey, we're disruptors, bro. We're going to change the system, bro. That's exactly what they want to do. And then the Republicans are the venture capital firms coming in saying, okay, hey, hey, I I respect some of the things you're doing, but you need to slow your roll. And that is how this quote actually exemplifies that the parties are still divided along these particular lines. So 
now that I've explained how they're divided, why, once again, I asked the question, why does this author not leave the Democratic Party? Well, he has an opinion on all that, of course, and I'm not leading us there whatsoever, but let's just read it. Quote, unfortunately, Democrats tend to believe in zero-sum fallacies. In their mind, wealth is like a pizza. If you and I get too many slices, there won't be enough left for them. Rather than focusing on growth and opportunity, they think about equality or equity. That's just another way of justifying raising taxes on a subset of people to spread the wealth around. Look no further than the classic Simpsons episode when Grandpa Simpson starts receiving random checks in the mail. When Bart finally asks him, didn't you wonder where you were getting those checks from for doing absolutely nothing? He replied, I just figured the Democrats were back in power again. Well, America has replaced Grandpa Simpson with Grandpa Biden. And instead of receiving checks, he sent them out. So, yeah, I definitely agree with part of the sentiment here. At the end of the day, it's a survival mindset. And this this is not something that just falls on the Democrats. This is people in the Republican side of the aisle. This is just Americans in general. It's the, you take something and there's less of it for me, rather than the beautiful thing about America, which is, hey, if you feel that there's not enough for you, if you feel that you're being gypped, instead of going and taking from somebody else and using the arm of government, using force and violence to take that back, no, go out and change how the system works or expand the opportunities. If you feel as though that the local store is being too preferential on selling a pane of glass to another distributor or another uh, glass operation that is working in your area, rather than going and saying, no, no, holding a gun to their head and saying, I will get this glass from you. You will give me a competitive rate. No, you find a way to source better glass. You find a way to source glass cheaper or the same glass cheaper. You create a new supply chain. Eventually, you cut down on costs and force those other guys to change their price structure so it can't be beneficial for them. This is the beauty of America. It's not about slicing up the pie. It's about growing the pie all together. And that is something that we are losing because we have this survival mentality that, ah, it's all about me, me, me. And it, when it comes down to being all about me, 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 it's not about what I can get and grow and do myself. It's what I can end up taking and getting from other places because, oh, no, there's only a limited supply. Rather than having the mindset, no, I'm going to increase the supply. And I think that is still prevalent nowadays. And that's why I wanted to read this article. Because when I read that last part, and I know, you know, Grandpa Simpson, I never really liked the Simpsons, but when I read that quote, I thought it was funny. I gave a little giggle, and I thought about what he was saying beforehand. And it's a really important insight. All right, so let's jump to our next article that comes from the Mises Institute. Uh, This one, uh, you know, I thought it was a little bit over the top when I read the headline, but... It is what it is, quote, preserving the status quo, creating a generation of welfaring, welfaring libertine narcissists. So this is obviously coming from the Mises Institute. And when they say libertine, they don't mean true libertarians. They kind of mean it as an insult because libertine is more, hey, get your hands off my stuff. Get get out of my life and not having uh, more of a overall consistent view of libertarianism, which is not just, hey, get out of my stuff, but or don't get involved in my business, but getting government gone altogether because it's an interference in the market system, in society, and so on and so forth. A limited government is the best government. That's what libertarian actually stands for. Libertine is more on the social front. Hey, it's not your business. Stay out of my life kind of deal. 
So there's a there's an interesting point they're trying to get at, which is saying, hey, these this generation really self obsessed. Hey, just stay out of my business. Oh, hey, what can the state do for me? AKA the welfaring part. But they also take a very interesting tact when talking about the rest of the article, and it has to do with the framing of Hamas versus Palestine. So let's go on forward, read their first quote that really lays out what they're getting at. Regardless of one's opinion on Israel and Palestine, people can agree that killing innocent citizens, whatever their form, is horrible. And whoever takes hostages for bargaining chips in negotiations is a horrific human being, such as the case of the ongoing seize of Gaza. Gaza. One has to wonder why Hamas decided the best course of action was to commit atrocities and kidnap civilians, only to elicit a response amounting to war crimes against Gaza, where most of the people didn't approve of their actions. While Hamas is starting to realize what they did might contribute to the end of Gaza as we know it, some people disagree and argue that what happened in southern Israel was justified, end quote. So you can see the framing that they're taking here. They're At the end of the day, they're saying, hey, we don't want innocent people dead. Hey, we do not want hostages taken to be you know, traded back and forth in order to get what they want out of this. And you can kind of see where they're leaning on saying, hey, Hamas, they were doing this to provoke Israel. That's what they're trying to get at in those last few lines. Hamas purposely did this to promote Israel. And this is going to lead to the libertarian argument, which is why as a Western nation, essentially, in the Middle East, a democracy, why would you give in to exactly what they want? Why would you go and attack them and create the next generation of Hamas, because you're killing their fam- the young people's family members, or you're killing the young people who have brothers, sisters, fathers, who are going to now blame Israel. And why would you give them the PR win of Israel attacking Hamas? Because you could argue that it's pretty obvious that when Israel does something, it's going to be reported, sometimes positively, sometimes negatively. But no matter how it's reported, positive or negative, there's still going to be a little bit of spin put on it by the people that are on the ground or the people that don't already like Israel. So you can see where this libertarian mindset argument is going to take us. And I don't want to say that their argument is necessarily the most persuasive thing in the world, because while I definitely agree, you don't necessarily want to give in to what people want you to do if they're trying to set you up and make you look bad. But also at the same time, if somebody invades your nation, and they kill your citizens, you're justified to go and at least respond. You're justified for the violation of your sovereignty in order to go into that other place and make sure that it doesn't happen again. And I, you know, I do, I'm going to be honest, I don't always love this framing of what if this happened in America? I don't always like it because it's kind of an emotional response. It's trying to compare and say, ah, yes, this situation, if it happened exactly in America, we would be okay with it. So then we need to support it. Sometimes it's used as a justification to support it rather than uh, the actual point of it, that analogy is understand where the Israelis are coming from. Put yourself in their shoes. If we were attacked here in America and the exact same size of attack, you want to say proportionally or just raw numbers, is exactly the same as what happened in Israel. You think we would step back? You think we would be okay with somebody else violating our sovereignty? You think we would turn the cheek? We would be the bigger 
country. I mean, we already are the bigger country, but you understand where I'm coming from. We literally launched an entire war in the Middle East because of the 9-11 attacks. So I think when that analogy or that question, would we allow this if this happened to us in America, it's very useful when understanding how to put yourself in somebody else's shoes. That doesn't mean I necessarily agree with the 100% justification that sometimes, not every person says this, not every conservative or Democrat says it, but sometimes comes along with the process of, hey, we need to outright support them. And when I say support them, yeah, we support our allies. But what I mean by support is directly get involved. Yeah, I mean, there has been talk of this already on multiple sides about how we could be pulled in directly to some sort of conflict with uh, Iran or something to that effect. While I think that is hyperbolic, I also don't want to dismiss the fact that some people are saying, hey, yeah, we might want to get involved there so we don't get pulled into that conflict. Well, guess what? If we get involved there, that's directly going to pull us into that conflict. So how about we say hands off? How about we say Israel, you have the right to do what you're doing to defend your sovereignty, but don't expect us to put boots on the ground. And there are going to be questions about aid because I think it, just like we have come to the realization that we need to question where the money is going when it goes to Ukraine, the same thing needs to be put in place with Israel and need to make sure that our weapons are being used, in my opinion, defensively rather than offensively. If you want to use weapons, or and let's be clear, if they want to buy weapons outright, fine, but not just giving them to them through different aid packages. And normally, yes, I understand they're not actually just giving it to them. They're technically loans. So sure, I guess that could be okay, and if you want to frame it that way. But anything that we're just giving to them because they're our ally, because we support them, should be defensive. Anything offensive should be bought like a free market transaction, and then they can go to town because their sovereignty, their problem, their neighbors, and they need to address it in the way that they see fit. That doesn't mean that we have to be directly there on the ground helping out. So that's just how I'm laying out the libertarian argument that they would propose. And also some of the tenets that I agree with it with, some of the other things I don't agree with it with. Obviously, much more nuanced, willing to be persuaded. If you have comments, throw them down in the comment sections. Always open to a different perspective. Trust me, I've gone back on back and forth on this issue a million different times. Uh, and by go back and forth, I mean between a more libertarian and a more standard conservative response, you know, and, you know, maybe a classical democrat response but the progressive response of the oppressor oppressor narrative that one no offense has never really sat well with me uh i i don't like the framing of it that way and i don't think that we should frame issues that way because it's just going to lead to more escalation and you know more america hate because of course america we are the great oppressor apparently so what is this sentiment born of? What is this idea born of? What is the Mises Institute trying to get at? They're trying to talk about middle America and how it's shifting a little bit. And, and I know you're like, wait, hold on, hold on. We were just talking about the Middle East. What do you, what do you mean that we're talking about uh, middle America here? But this is something that strikes at the heart of middle America. This is something, an issue that is going to speak to a little bit of a demographic that is a little older, that was classically, no matter whether you're Democrat or Republican, pretty darn supportive of Israel. And since middle America is full of working class people who are either turning Republican, have been Republican, or are 
Democrats to some degree. This is a place where there's kind of an intersection that a lot of these ideas can flourish and there can actually be a serious conversation about. And that's what the Mises Institute is trying to get at here. Quote, while middle America might not have all the right ideas, the left and the top of the foreign policy interventionists see them as a liability. During the fight over who should be Speaker of the House over the ousting of Kevin McCarthy, hardline pro-Ukraine Republicans cooperated with Democrats on who should be in the position. Meanwhile, Democrat Brad Sherman floated the idea of George W. Bush for House Speaker. In the end, pro-Ukraine and pro-Israel Mike Johnson came out on top. It certainly won't be the last time foreign policy crosses party lines. In the aftermath of 2016, Bill Kristol heartedly embraced the political left and declared that, quote, we neoconservatives are all Democrats. Clarification is mine. So he actually says, we are all Democrats. And then in brackets, it says neoconservatives. Likewise, Nikki Haley made an exception for anti-abortion policies just to keep the military up and running, presumably for more wars in the Middle East and elsewhere. So those middle Americans who kind of cross party lines, who could ride the party or either party and actually kind of be in the middle there, they also speak to the idea that there are these politicians that ride the middle line, that could be on either side that are really just part of a previous establishment that has operated for so long and worked for so long that they're not going to just leave behind their ideology just because the party shifts. And that's what the Mises Institute is trying to call out here. He's trying to say that the perspective, the predetermined perspective on Israel is one that is so deeply embedded in the American establishment that we don't even question it. And maybe we should. Maybe we should have a serious conversation about why we have certain policies in place. That's not to say that those policies don't work. It doesn't mean that they don't have merit, but it also needs to be raised, just like we have with Ukraine, just like we have with a lot of the different policies that have been in place. We need to raise the question, is this actually benefiting us? Is this in our national interest? And if we just go with the predecided decision, we're never going to have those conversations and figure out what is and isn't. We're just going to keep following the same old trail and probably get lost in the woods. That's just where I'm coming down on it. So let's jump to our final article. It will be a little bit of a quick one. I think this one, it's interesting. Uh, it's coming from uh, the American prospect. They obviously have a very particular point of view. So they're They're coming from a very specific angle, but it was something that I thought should at least be highlighted a little bit. The Amazon loophole in driving the fentanyl crisis. So what is going on here? What is this big anti-Amazon story? If you've been with me for a while, you know I'm not the biggest fan of Amazon. Uh, It's not, well, I was going to say it's not because, you know, they're just... Uh, a corporation that's huge, and that's true. It's not just because they're a big corporation. It's because they're really good at what they do. I really appreciate them as a, a company, as a business major, as a profit-producing machine. Yes, I have stock, but that doesn't mean that I, I love them. Like I said, they're too good. They're too good at their jobs. They know how to keep people hooked. They have a lot of interesting third-party deals that uh, really undercut the profits of some of the people that put things on their platforms. 
their supply chain is basically so integrated that you can't really, you know, hijack it, get in and try to utilize certain parts of it without being fully integrated. And at the end of the day, since what they have most of the eyeballs, they're actually forcing people to get on and deal with their rules because they have the marketplace where almost 90% of Americans go on at least a monthly basis, if not a weekly basis, to get some sort of product. So, what are the corporate interests here? What is this Amazon loophole? Quote, one of the more frustrating things about public policy in the United States is how the dominance of corporate interests makes simple reforms that could have saved thousands of lives impossible. To wit, here's the story of how Amazon and other retailers facilitated the epidemic of deaths from fentanyl. We know that fentanyl deaths rose 279% from 2016 to 2022. Two-thirds of the 110,000-plus overdose deaths in the Americas this last year were due to fentanyl. It is the leading killer of American ages 18 to 49, and it has devastating community, devastated communities across the country. Drug enforcement efforts in the United States have historically targeted supply through so-called the drug on war on drugs. But reducing the amount of fentanyl on the street need not involve military-style operations in Central and South America. China is the source of most of the chemical compounds that cartels use to make fentanyl in illicit drug labs. Without these raw materials, much of the fentanyl trade would be stopped. So how do we actually limit the importation of some of this fentanyl and some of these chemicals that are being shipped in from China into Mexico so the cartels can make this synthetic opioid that is... Uh, a lot more deadly than heroin, a lot more potent per gram than heroin. How do we stop this? Or more accurately, how do we understand what's happening? How is it happening? And then can we go on to stop it from there? So let's talk about the loophole. Quote, while Chinese cooperation is welcome, the bigger problem is that the vast majority of fentanyl chemicals sent from China are not inspected at all. That's because of something called the de minimis rule. Section 230, sorry, 321 of the Tariff Act of the 1930s allows for goods under a certain value to be shipped into the United States without tariffs, fees, or inspections. Anyone who has flown on international travel is familiar with the form uh, with their declaration card when they return to the United States. If you got some trinkets from abroad that are of nominal value, you don't have to submit them to customs off officials. In 2016, that nominal or de minimis value went up from 200 to 800. There are only two countries in the world that have a higher de minimis value than the U.S., China's de minimis value is less than $10. So how does this change the game? So what can happen is large sellers, large corporations who get their products from all around the world, they send over large, large shipping containers full of these different packages. And obviously, altogether, the shipment would be over $800, which is the new de minimis value. So they have plants in other locations other fulfillment centers in other countries that break it up and put them on smaller uh, trucks or into smaller packages that are less than $800. So then they can get into the United States without being inspected so it can make things faster for customers uh, from these online retailers. But guess what? That also means that some of these other drugs that can get 
shuttled in are going in without being inspected. Now, of course, a large majority of the cartel production of fentanyl is in Mexico. So to say that, oh yeah, changing this de minimis rule would actually alter the amount of fentanyl going across the U.S. border is probably true to some degree. It's probably safer for the cartels to have an operation set up here in America where the drugs get shipped to and then they process it so they don't have to worry about getting it across the border again. But a large majority of this production is going on south of the border. So just changing the diminished rule is not going to solely change the situation of the fentanyl crisis here in America, but something that needs to be considered because it is a loophole that can be taken advantage of. And if they're not already doing it to a large degree, they could very well do it in the future. So this is something that we need to think about. We need to have a conversation about it. If you want to read more about it, the link to this article is in the description below that like and subscribe button. But let's also jump to our last story, which is a positive one. I promise it's cute. It's adorable. Our daily delight this time comes from Woo Globe. Cat bumps into couch trying to jump from the table. So cats are normally seen as very agile animals, but you know sometimes they, they do fumble like the Redskins on Thanksgiving Day. Quote, a cat attempts to a daring jump from the table to the couch, but hilariously bumps into the couch in the process. Undeterred by the mishap, the determined feline quickly recovers and cleverly climbs back onto the couch to reach its intended destination, the windowsill. So at the end of the day, he may have bumped his head, he may have felt a little bit sad, but there was a solid laugh, and at the end of the day, he got where he needed to go. Quote, the cat's acrobatic antics and unexpected blunder made for a lighthearted and amusing moment that is sure to bring laughter to anyone who watches. And just like that last article, if you want to see any of the photos or videos from this article, give it a little read through. All of them are in the link in the description below that like and subscribe button. Also down there, you can find the podcast on Spotify, Pocket Cast, Google Podcasts, Podvine, and the Twitter handle at Your Daily Flip, where I post a Twitter tirade every Tuesday and Thursday, a little bit less formal, less quotes, just kind of off the top of the head thinking about what I'm reading or what I've read over the course of the last week. All right. With all that said, there is only one more thing to say. Stay safe. Don't die.